Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Will Kostakis. Will Kostakis is an award-winning author of young adult fiction. Beginning with his first novel, Loathing Lola, Will explores themes of loss, grief, and queer adolescent experience. Will's joining me today on Great Conversations to discuss his fantasy series, Monuments and Rebel Gods. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'd love it if you can help me help others discover great new Australian books. If you give us a rating, leave a comment, or even just tell someone, you know, chatting books... Check out the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. It helps put us in front of more eyes in the podcast world. Let's people know that we're out there. Now, today on the show, Connor, Sally, and Lockie should just be ordinary teens, skipping class, dealing with friendship dramas. But there's a pantheon of ancient gods known as monuments hidden beneath the high schools of Sydney. As they race to find the monuments and deal with their power, Lockie, Connor and Sally must confront the danger of the hounds, rebel gods and the question of who, if anyone, has the right to control so much power. Now, Will and I had such a great wide-ranging conversation. I have split this up into a couple of parts. So join me today for part one, where Will and I discuss teens, the power of gods, family and queer superheroes. Join me as we discover Will Kostakis's Monuments and Rebel Gods. My name is Andrew Popel, and I have got a fantastic, not just one book, two books to share with you today. From Will Kostakis, he is an award-winning author of young adult fiction. His first novel, Loathing Lola, was released when he was 19. He followed this up with the first third sidekicks and starting last year will's first fantasy novel monuments now the second and final chapter of this series rebel gods came out this year right when we needed a little divine intervention will's joining me today we're going to talk monuments and rebel gods will thank you so much for for joining me on final draft thanks so much for having me now i thought it might be appropriate to begin with kind of a minor spoiler alert i hate spoilers i don't ever want to give spoilers <laughs> but i think inevitably when we start talking about rebel gods we run the risk of giving away some details from monuments i personally don't think that takes anything away from the enjoyment but i, I mean people should definitely go out and check out connor sally and Lockie as they seek to uncover the ancient gods that are known as monuments that are hidden under high schools in sydney And as they race to find the monuments, they must confront the danger of the hounds and the question of who, if anyone, has the right to control so much power. That's monuments. Now, rebel gods, the trio, have a new danger that they must face. The rebel gods personify our deepest and perhaps our darkest influences of love, fear and hunger. These gods have been imprisoned for thousands of years after they plunged the world into war. Now they're back and they're coming for Lockie. Sally and Connor. How did I go, Will? I actually think I didn't give too many spoilers away there. That was really good. You made me want to read the whole book. So <laughs> no, that was great. Uh, yeah, and there, was, there were no spoilers. I think that's, that's pretty good. I'd give you, look, I'll give you a nine out of ten only because I believe in encouraging people to always try to better themselves. But I think that was pretty close to perfect. I think I think a synopsis like it, it skirts such a fine line of enticing and revealing, but not so much. 
I wondered though, so the monuments, the duology, it's a, a bit of a departure from your earlier work in that it's delving into mm-hmm. fantasy with its gods and mythology. But I actually suspect that it's not so far from the themes that have concerned all your writing. So maybe instead of my asking you why a pantheon of gods, we could talk about the ways that gods and mythologies have always reflected and concerned themselves with the very sort of core of our humanness and our human relationships. Yeah, that sounds great. Because look, the big thing is that I love writing families and dealing with sort of these gods. It was just a different kind of family. It was one that had a much longer history than I'm used to writing. And that was a really great springboard into then writing the series. I feel like there's maybe a temptation to make a superficial comparison between gods and teens. I mean, many ancient depictions show the gods as capricious and impulsive and yeah, I guess if you if we wanted to get a little highbrow, we go, oh, those those young people with their capricious and impulsive <laughs> ways. But there really is something so much about how we are as humans. And I guess we, as we become adults, we layer that. And um, perhaps, uh, well, yeah, are gods and teens alike? Yeah, it was, you know, there is that layer of they think that they are the centre of the universe, as a lot of teens do, especially teens at the centre of their own books. <laughs> they have to or else the plot doesn't work. But I really used, you know, Connor, Lockie and Sally, I wanted them to be empowered teens where they drive the story forward themselves. And so I use the metaphor of them becoming gods to look at sort of those first awkward steps that we all make into adulthood, you know, navigating uh, not only the people that we want to be, but our existing and changing relationships with you know, the people we thought were gods growing up, our parents and our grandparents, the people that we learnt from. And so I really thought it was a really wonderful place to tell a really general story about growing up, but through this sort of fantasy lens. I want to come to that idea of growing up, but before we get to it, I, I wondered, we live in this world where theology, religiosity, and institutional religion, they're, they're often extremely polarised. They're even weaponized in public discourse. Did you have mm-hmm. any sort of, were you fraught? Was there tension? Did you have concerns about engaging with these issues? I didn't really, but it was something that was always at the forefront of, say, my publisher's mind, where it was, I wanted to explore, like, could you imagine if someone walked out into the middle of Pitt Street in Sydney and said, I am Jesus? Like, how would pre-existing religions deal with that and contend with that? Because, you know, it may be that that person is telling the truth, but that is a threat to their very existence. That is sort of religions are power structures. And if somebody claims to usurp them, then suddenly, you know, there is this struggle, there is this threat. And even if the organizations themselves don't engage, you have people who do a lot of bad things in the name of religion that espouse doctrines of love and kindness. And so while I didn't want to, excuse the pun, demonize sort of existing religions, I did want to sort of shine a light on those tensions. But the flip side is I have to constantly remind myself that I'm writing a book for teenagers. And once you start building that sort of 
scope, you start telling a story about the world rather than the story of these three teenagers. And so a lot of the stuff that I did end up putting in in the drafting phases that looked at that interplay ended up getting stripped back, especially in Rebel Gods, and because I really wanted to zero in on the personal journeys these characters go on. But I still think the hints of that are still there and you can see it playing out in the margins of the story. You got me to just then thinking back to the very beginning of Monuments. And Monuments, again, I would encourage people, if you're looking at Rebel Gods, you've got to go read Monuments first. And it's such a pacey book. Connor gets into the action straight away. And when we meet Darok, who is the first monument, the first sort of old god that we meet, he um he comes across so so kind of matter-of-fact, almost glib. And at first I thought, well, how do you get your yourself into the headspace of a god that's been buried under a Sydney high school for a couple of hundred years? And now you've got me thinking about those relationships. And, and are those reactions, are they sort of more that adult to teen kind of dynamic? Yeah, it is. And it's, the thing is, though, Derek has learned all the lessons and made all the mistakes that Connor is about to. And so, you know, where Connor ends up and where he and his friends end up at the end of Rebel Gods when they really contended with the power that they have what I really wanted to explore was that you could talk to my grandparents, you could talk to my yaya and my papa, right? So they're both Greek Orthodox, they both grew up in the same church. You talk to my grandmother about sort of God, and she will tell you he is watching you all the time, and if you do something wrong, he will know. And so she very much believes in that sort of very hands-on God. But if you had the same conversation with my grandfather when he was alive, he was less sort of oh, you know, Jesus is in the sky watching us all. He would be more like, you know, God made the world and we just have to be, we have to be the good Christians that sort of keep his vision going. We are his representatives here. So there's that. And you see that all the time in the different ways that people, you know, interact with their Christianity where you have some people who believe in this really obvious divine intervention and others who believe that they, that God works through them. I wanted to explore that in the two different kinds of gods that this world has. You have the creator gods who create everything and step aside, and you have the influential gods who, you know, see the world as their sort of plaything and they want everything to go according to their plan. And so when Connor meets Darak at the beginning of the first book, Monuments, he is meeting somebody who wants to have his hands off the world and leave it for humans to do with what they will. But when you meet Connor and Lockie and, you know, more Lockie than Sally, they are teenagers who then become gods who are enticed by the prospect of influencing change and dealing with so many inequalities that they have experienced and seen. And so that sort of affects that difference between who they are it impacts the way that Connor sees Derek in the beginning of the book. And you sort of, Connor is then sort of launched on his journey to while he doesn't become like those old gods were, mm. I'm sure he understands them a whole lot better by the time he's gone through everything he has at the end of Rebel Gods. I don't want to dive too much deeper on this, but you got me thinking there about how important our individual narratives are in helping us interpret the world. Um, you're talking about your grandparents there. 
And also other than to to sort of note, you know, we're having this conversation in December and, you know, mm-hmm. people are starting to um, starting to pull their elf on a shelves out and it's just always boggles me how, how people are so comfortable with that idea of an ever-present sort of panopticon watching us and controlling our behaviour, which, um, you know, <laughs> elf, elf on the Shelf really has become that interventionist, um, ever-aware god. <laughs> That was a that was a strange inter, strange interjection, but it it is interesting. It was a bit creepy, but you mm. know, we'll, we'll, it's it, it's Instagram culture. Yeah. <laughs> now, in Rebel Gods, uh, Connor and, and Sally and Lockie, they have leveled up, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm still keeping it super vague on the hows and whys for for the people yeah. who need to read <laughs> monuments. I definitely felt that uh, felt though that between monuments between the monuments, sorry, and the rebel gods and our heroes, you're engaging with this sense of inheritance and legacy. Mm-hmm. And I wondered about these these parallels, or I saw these parallels with discussions around climate change, you know, institutionalized structures mm-hmm. that pop up racism and basically all the shit that our world is dealing with that has its origins in generations past. Well, a big part, rebel gods changed its shape so many times. As I was sort of drafting it, you know, because the book is set in 2020 and I was so intent on writing a book that was realistic to 2020, not realizing there was a plague coming. Um, Mm. And so the first book takes place, it was written in 2018, but it is set in March, 2020, when, as we know, nothing historical of note happened. (laughs) (laughs) And then... (laughs) uh, No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Exactly. Um... And then what ended up happening while I was drafting Rebel Gods and I was really in the sort of weeds of figuring out what this story was, you know, around the time of the, you know, school strike and you're seeing empowered teenagers all over the country. And so it did have a lot of its origins in sort of who these characters were in that political moment and in sort of teenagers like Greta Thunberg sort of standing up and saying enough is enough, and seeing what Australian teenagers were capable of when teachers and parents gave them the space to organise things like that. And so the first few drafts of Rebel Gods, and I say that as if I spent more than eight months on the book entirely, it was just a very sort of rapid process and constantly evolving. But those early drafts did involve those more specific political movements, and then so more references to climate change more references to sort of incarceration and injustice. And it's, it's a fraught subject matter where I, you know, as a sort of Greek Australian want to, who is writing, you know, an Aboriginal character named Lockie, you know, I wanted to shine a light on the injustices that, you know, we see and we are aware of every day, but without sort of speaking you know, and taking up space that people who have experienced that and who have more of a personal connection to that, they should be occupying that space. Mm. And so it was it was a knife edge to tread where I wanted to explore issues with specificity, but without then either dating the book in one sort of political time. And I wanted it to feel like it was a general roadmap to hey, teenagers, you can enact change. Whatever the change is, whatever the injustice you see, you can you can fix it if you sort of work together and work towards it. 
Now, teen superheroes have a long history and they've long engaged with issues around discrimination and othering. Mm-hmm. But queer superheroes, they used to be fringe, they were hidden, victims of things like uh, the comic book code in America. I still remember what a big deal it was when Marvel Comics featured the wedding of their most prominent gay character at the time back in 2012. Connor and Lockie's relationship, though, it's by contrast, mm-hmm. it's very matter-of-fact in the story. How are these, yeah. and forgive, forgive the term I'm dubbing here, how are these super queer depictions evolving? There are a couple of things at play here. There are there's me as an author not wanting to constantly relive my trauma. If I am constantly writing a coming out story every single time, then and I have to I have to write about that Greek kid in the corner who's scared of telling people he's gay, right? And if I constantly do that, that's at some point that's gonna rub off on me and how I view the world. So at that point. The second point is, as somebody who does have a responsibility, who is writing for teenagers, we seem to tell all these stories, these traumatic coming out stories, and then we, we hint at, oh, it's going to get better, and then the book ends. We never actually show, or it's not, I won't say never, but predominantly in the culture, we are far more comfortable showing queer suffering than we are showing queer joy. Mm. And so I knew when I was stepping into this book, I was like, you know what? I'd just come off, you know, writing the sidekicks, which was quite a cathartic experience for me because it mirrored my own coming out. And I came out to my family as I was writing it because the, the story gave me the strength to sort of do that. But at the same time, when that book came out, there was this whole brouhaha where, you know, schools were questioning whether it was appropriate for me, a now gay author, to speak at schools when I had spent close to a decade doing it previously. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write sort of this positive rep and that, that's what I want to write. The thing is, though, we, we think that queer suffering is realistic. We think that it is a rite of passage, that you're going to have to talk to your parents and it is possible they won't accept you. But the reason why we think that that is the norm is because that may have been our experience 10, 20 years ago and because it's still repeated in media. If you meet sort of queer kids today and, you know, when I visit schools and I am constantly bombarded with the queer kids, mm. they have different experiences. Support is more the norm. Like acceptance, not just acceptance, not just tolerance. Love is the norm. And we live in a world now where straight kids are faking being gay on TikTok for clout. Like the way that we explore queerness has shifted and that's because, you know, a big part of it is there are far more queer storytellers and sample queer stories coming through the mainstream because they're proving to be popular. And so when it came to crafting Connor, I wanted his story to not have to deal with the traumas of coming out. And obviously that's difficult because when you're trying to build a story, it's based in conflict. And so there were suggestions from editors who were like, oh, Monuments begins with Connor and his best friend having a friend divorce. And so it was floated to me quite early on. Oh, are they, is the friend divorced because he's gay? Can we make it that he was rejected by his friend because he's gay? And I had to be like, no, absolutely not. They have whatever their sort of tip is. That's not it. And, but it's something, there's, there's a resistance still. And there's something quite 
I don't want to say my work is radical, isn't particularly radical, but there is a quiet sort of radical element to just letting queer teenagers experience joy and show them the lives that they can live. And so I worked really hard to make sure that there was a, look, it's the first book in the series is quite thirsty. You get sort of Connor sees Lockie, you know, they get to know each other over two or three days. And so it's very, Connor is sort of overwhelmed by, oh my God, I've just met this person and they're the greatest person ever. Mm-hmm. And stepping into uh, Rebel Gods, it's set a couple of weeks later and they've sort of settled into themselves a bit more. And I wanted to show, here's the roadmap for just a really wonderful equal partnership where they bring out the best in each other. So I purposely made sure that Lockie wasn't so much the object of desire, but that was someone who was a fixture in Connor's life and who made his life better. And those are the stories that we see in straight stories all the time. And I wanted to make sure that there was that sort of kind of queer story as well in uh, Rebel Gods. That's it for part one of this great conversation with Will Kostakis. Will's latest novel is Rebel Gods. It is the second part of the Monuments duology. It's out now through Lothian. The second part of my conversation with Will will be coming out tomorrow, so stay tuned and get a little bit more of Will's incredible fantasy universe. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just go to at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe in your podcast app, well, you're going to have part two of this conversation, for starters, appearing tomorrow. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back with more great conversations from Final Draft, and as always, I wish you happy reading. Bye now.